following is a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We are glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. Over the next four weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to be looking at passages that are found in the first two chapters of the Gospel of Luke. In these two chapters, we actually find four nativity hymns. Nativity hymns are songs sung by four different people. Mary, Zechariah, the angels, and Simeon all sing over the good news that God promises are coming to fruition in Jesus. And these joyful and hopeful songs really stand out at the beginning of Luke, especially given Israel's recent history. You might remember that at this point in redemptive history, that there has been 400 years of silence from God. These 400 years are what's known as the intertestamental period, the time between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament or the arrival of uh, God in Jesus. And these 400 years uh, would be a time where God's people had not heard from a prophet or received any official word from God. It would have been a period of time characterized by questions and discouragement and darkness as God's people endured this long silence. And as we pick up in the beginning of Luke, that long period of silence we actually seen is broken as God re-enters the picture in an extravagant way. In fact, God re-enters the picture in such a grand way that it leads people to write poetry and sing songs. We're going to be looking at the songs these people sing over the next few weeks. And these songs, they only appear in Luke. And some have said that they're the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. They kind of bridge the gap between Old and New Testament. And this morning, we're going to look at the first of these songs from Luke chapter 1. It's Mary's song often referred to as the Magnificat, which comes from the Latin word for magnify, which is the first word in Mary's song. And this is a song of praise and celebration over what God has done and is going to do. We'll see that the focus in Mary's song is not on herself, but centered on God and His work. Some have said this song is gospel before the gospel. It's good news celebrated 30 weeks before good news is born in Bethlehem. And we'll begin reading a few verses before the song for context. And as we read Mary's song of celebration this morning, I want us to see how it encourages us in this season of waiting for Christ's appearance. So you follow along as I read beginning from Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town of Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. There are really two kinds of people in the world. Those who listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving and those who wait until the day after Thanksgiving to begin listening. I wonder what kind of person you are. The debate can turn passionate pretty quickly, especially on social media. But no matter where you fall, Christmas music is now allowed and it's a good thing because there is something about Christmas music that brings a certain amount of nostalgia, a certain amount of joy to our lives. It's, it's why I find myself almost instinctively humming and singing Christmas tunes over the past few days. In fact, while we were decorating our tree this past Friday, the first thing that came to mind is that we need some Christmas music. So we started playing Christmas music while we decorated the tree. And this makes sense because music is powerful. There's something about music and song that has the potential to touch something deep in our hearts. When we experience deep emotions, emotions for which we don't have the words to express, what do we do? We sing. Think about it. Some of our most important occasions are surrounded by song. Birthday parties and weddings, graduations and sporting events, worship and even funerals. When our hearts are filled with emotion, they naturally overflow with song. And in our passage this morning, we see Mary erupt into a song. She has just experienced some very strange things. A visit from an angel, a peculiar interaction with Elizabeth, babies making lots of commotion in the womb, and she's piecing it all together. Likely on her journey home, she begins processing what God's been doing in her heart and in her life, and she composes a song. She gets excited about what God is doing. Emotion begins to fill her heart and it expresses itself through celebration and song. It's important at this point to stop and ask, who exactly is singing this song? Who is Mary? Well, we know from earlier in the gospel of Luke that she's a young girl. She's betrothed to Joseph. She's likely around 13 or 14 years old because according to Jewish custom, you could be betrothed at around 12 years of age. She's also not a person from a notable background. Neither she nor Joseph came from a family of prominence. In fact, Bethlehem, where she and Joseph had to go back to for the census, the hometown of Joseph in the the place where our Savior Jesus was born, was a backwater town, one that wouldn't even have shown up on a map in that day and age. On top of that, we know that Mary and Joseph were poor. You might wonder, how do we know that? Well, if you flipped a few pages forward in your Bible, you'd see that when they went to purify Mary after the birth of her first son, they couldn't even afford a lamb. So they had to sacrifice two turtle doves. 
And this exception made comes from Leviticus 12 verse 8, where it says this, if the person cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or pigeons. Now just stop and think about that for a minute. Who would have thought when this was read by the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, that it would be referring to the family of Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world? a family that wasn't even well off enough to purchase a lamb for the purification process. So we see that Mary was really, for lack of a better word, a nobody. She was nothing notable. And if you put yourself in her shoes, you'd understand how she would have been scared. After all, she's now pregnant before being married. She's talking about being visited by angels She's likely being looked down upon by her friends and her family. She's open to criticism from her own people. She's suffering for being favored by God. Suffering for being blessed. I love how Sinclair Ferguson puts it when he says, God burdened Mary with a blessing. God burdened Mary with a blessing. She would have no category for the prosperity gospel that's oftentimes bantered around in our current culture. So we see that Mary was powerless and lowly. She had no might in herself. She had nothing that would have attracted the eyes of the world to her. And if you've read your Bible, if you've read your Bible, you know that because of all this, she was the perfect candidate for God's work. And it's an encouragement for us as we enter this Advent season, a season of waiting and longing, a season of darkness as we wait for the light of Christ to burst upon us. This is a passage that reminds us that God comes to those who are powerless, to those who are lowly and not regarded by the world's standards. And I would imagine that's how we feel more often than we'd like to admit. Powerless and lowly. We're powerless in many ways. If you don't feel powerless, maybe you should. Because we're powerless oftentimes to change relationships that we wish we could make better. We're powerless to defeat sin and temptation in our own strength, oftentimes falling again and again and again. We're powerless when it comes to how our bodies disintegrate and disease overtakes us. We're powerless against the debilitating depression and sadness that we often experience. We're powerless against the inevitable approach of death, which we'll all face. We're also lowly in many ways, not knowing exactly why everything we experience works for our good or how it works for our good. Not able to change certain aspects of our lives and experiences. Not able to pull ourselves up to experience the joy and the happiness that we wish we could in life. I think we can resonate with Mary in many ways. But we see from our passage that Mary is God's servant. We see that God is with her, literally with her in her stomach, just like he's with us literally in our hearts by his spirit. We see from our passage that God loves his people. We see from our passage that God is one who shows up. We see that God is one who remembers and keeps his promises. And we see that Mary responds to God's love with a song. It's the first Christmas carol in a very real sense. And you might notice that this song has lots of Old Testament references throughout. It looks back at God's character and his promises. 
And as we take a look at Mary's song and see ourselves like Mary as powerless and lowly, we'll find encouragement as we look at God's might and mercy. God's might and God's mercy. That's what I want us to see this morning from Mary's song. I want us to see God's might and God's mercy. So let's first take a look at God's might and how that encourages us in our lives today. As we look at God's might and God's power, we have to address the elephant in the passage. Mary, likely around 13 years of age, who's never been married according to the testimony of the day, which was extremely reliable. She'd never engaged in any activity that would lead to childbirth. She's a virgin. Yet here she is pregnant. And if you've grown up in the church, the tendency is to look at this passage and say, oh, of course, it's the virgin birth. Everyone knows what that is. What's the big deal? But it's important to stop and recognize that while this might not be a big deal or a defeater for those who have grown up in the church like you and me, it's a huge hurdle for those who are new to Christianity. After all, if someone is pregnant, it would defy the laws of science to say that person is a virgin. It reminds me of an interview I saw last year between Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times and William Lane Craig, who's an evangelical professor of philosophy at the University of Houston. And in the interview, it begins with Kristoff saying, Merry Christmas, Dr. Craig. I must confess that for all my admiration for Jesus, I'm skeptical about some of the narrative we've inherited. Are you actually confident that Jesus was born to a virgin? Dr. Craig responds, Merry Christmas to you too, Nick. I'm reasonably confident. When I was a non-Christian, I used to struggle with this too. But then it occurred to me that for a God who could create the entire universe, making a woman pregnant wasn't that big a deal. Given the existence of a creator and designer of the universe for which we have good evidence, an occasional miracle is child's play. Historically speaking, the story of Jesus's virginal conception is independently attested by Matthew and Luke and is utterly unlike any pagan mythology or Judaism. So what's the problem? Later in the interview, Christoph zeroes in on the idea of miracles and how they don't square with what science teaches. And Christoph asks, so should we suspend our emphasis on science and rationality when we encounter miracles? To which Craig responds, I don't follow. Some of the arguments for God's existence that I've defended, such as the arguments from the origin of the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe, appeal to the best evidence of contemporary science. I get the impression, Nick, that you think science is somehow incompatible with belief in miracles. If so, you need to give an argument for that conclusion. David Hume's famous argument against miracles is today recognized by all serious scientists and philosophers as an abject failure, and no one has been able to do any better than him. Look, as those who worship God as creator, we might be so bold to say, along with Dr. Craig, that the occasional miracle is child's play for God. And the virgin birth is a miracle. It can be hard to swallow if you don't believe in God as creator. But if you do, then in light of all that God has done in this world with his creative power, then an occasional miracle is relatively easy for him. It highlights God's might, his power. 
God has indeed done wonderful things for Mary. She says so in verse 49. She says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary then goes on to recount the mighty deeds of God in verses 51 through 53. It's there we read of what God's might can do. Mary even talks uh, about how God will show his strength with his arm, which is a phrase that's loaded in the Old Testament, a phrase that was familiar to God's people. God's arm is a phrase that points to God's power, especially used in the Exodus account where God topples the most powerful ruler of the day, Pharaoh, with the power of his arm. And Mary says that he's going to use this arm to scatter the proud, to bring down the mighty, to send the rich away empty. In other words, God is going to use his might and take those who are mightiest according to the world's standards and show that he is mightier by far, show that he is much greater. Now, this doesn't mean that the powerful, the wealthy, the influential in this world are those that God opposes because of their power or their influence or their wealth. It's not that. The people Mary is singing about are the people who've placed their trust in their power, who have found their worth in their wealth, who have used their influence to oppress others while getting ahead themselves. These are the people who oppose the way of the Lord And Mary sings that when the Messiah comes, God's might is going to scatter the proud, going to bring down the mighty from their thrones and send the rich away empty. Not only that, he'll exalt those of humble estate. He'll fill the hungry with good things, Mary sings. God is going to use his might to reverse the natural order of this world. He reverses what we value. God makes the first last and the last first. He turns the values of this world on their head, revealing what is really most important. And this reversal that Mary sings of in verses 51, 52, and 53 is definite. God is definitely going to set all things right. He will bring down the powerful and exalt the humble. These are actually prophetic statements made by Mary. Go with me for a minute. If you're reading closely, you might say, wait a minute, prophetic statements? How can these be prophetic statements when they're spoken in the past tense? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Indeed, Mary is using the past tense in these verses, but it's what biblical scholars call the prophetic past. It means that what Mary speaks of has a future focus, but it's translated in the past tense because it's as sure as done. What Mary speaks of will be done by Jesus in the future, but these actions are as good as done. In other words, Mary is so confident that this reversal is going to happen that she writes as though it already has. We see from Mary's song that we should celebrate God's might, his power in our lives in this world. We worship one who promises uh, to us are as good as done. If God said it, we can take it to the bank. Yet if we're honest, like Mary, it often feels like God is burdening with us with a blessing. And sometimes the promises don't work out in the way we'd have chosen. Yet it's important to remember that he who is mighty is doing great things for us. In the midst of confusion, in the midst of difficult health 
situations, in the midst of disheartening relationships, and in the midst of disappointing job situations, in the midst of frustrations over how little you've grown spiritually, God is still mighty working on your behalf. And it doesn't always feel that way. It certainly did not feel that way to Mary in her day-in, day-out experience. But what we see from our passage, what we learn from Mary is that we can hold on because God is powerful when we are powerless. If God is strong, it means that we can be honest about our weakness. His might ensures that all the wrongs that we experience, all the heartbreak that we experience due to sin will be set right. God's strength ensures that those who are hungry will be filled, that God will one day exalt those of humble estate. That was Mary's great hope, and it's why she celebrates, and it's our hope too. But God's might isn't displayed simply for might's sake. It's not just a demonstration of power so that you and I might cower before him. God uses his might in order to show us mercy. And it's the second theme that stands out in Mary's song, God's mercy. God's might means that he's able to stay faithful to his promises and remain loyal to his people. God uses his strength in in order to display his mercy. His steadfast, never-ending, always-there love, God's might and mercy are not at odds. And we can take comfort that because God is mighty, we will experience his mercy. We see God's mercy on display as we think about Mary herself. In verse 47, she says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Look, it's pretty clear from this song that Mary is the one who receives mercy, not the one who dispenses mercy. Sure, our passage calls Mary blessed. And earlier in chapter one of Luke, we see that the angel calls her highly favored. And when God calls you favored and blessed, then that's what you are. We don't really need to, to gloss over that. Mary has a special role to play in God's redemptive purposes, one that no one else in the world is going to be able to play. She is certainly special, but not because of anything she did. Her life and her role is a testimony to God's mercy and grace. Remember, Mary's not important and significant before God calls her. In fact, she's what we might call a nobody. But God comes and makes her important. He comes and meets her where she is at in her lowest state while she's a nobody. And this is important for us to hear because we are a group of people by and large who want to be important. We see that Mary is a have not and we think, isn't that sweet? And we'd really like to be haves. Mary's a have-not, but I don't want to be a have-not. I'd like to be a have. We want to matter. We don't want to be insignificant. So we get to work so that we can measure up, so that we can be enough. We get to work so that we can be educated enough or fit enough or recognized enough or wealthy enough or pretty enough. But what we see in our passage is that God decides to highly favor one who didn't have enough. In fact, you could say that Mary had nothing. And if you've read the Bible, you know that's exactly what God is looking for when he decides to use someone for an important task. God puts this young girl, the one who has nothing in his plan, and she plays a highly favored role. 
Mary is exactly the kind of person God uses because he's merciful. And we see from verses 54 and 55 that his that in his mercy, he remembers the promises that he made to Abraham. God is making good on the promise he gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12 to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's lineage. Remember, God mercifully called Abraham and told him that he would bless him and in turn, Abraham and his offspring would bless the entire world. And the fruition of that promise is in Mary's belly as she sings this song of God's might and mercy. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, the one that God will ultimately use to bless the nations, to be a light to the entire world. And it's good news for us that according to verse 50, God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy extends beyond Mary It extends to us and it will extend long beyond us. There is no way to exhaust God's mercy. It continues for all time into every generation. God is lavish with his mercy. He doesn't have a limited supply. His mercy is for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's for Moses and Rahab, David and Abigail. It's for Mary and Peter and John. It's for you and me. It's for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren from generation to generation. Mary shows us that God is incredibly merciful. He has always been merciful and true to his promises, even though his people do not deserve it. In fact, what we deserve is the curse of God, not the blessing of God. But because of this baby that Mary carries, we get to experience God's mercy. This baby Mary carries would grow up and he'd be cursed when he should have been blessed. He'd be abandoned when he should have been received. He'd be looked down upon when he should have been worshipped. Also that you and I, along with Mary, might magnify the Lord and rejoice in God our Savior. And that's our hope this Christmas season, this Advent season, as we move into it further. We, let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, we thank you that you are one who makes promises to us and one who keeps promises. Thankful that your love is there for us and it extends from generation to generation. Lord, we pray this morning that you would encourage our hearts with the hope that you are mighty and merciful, all so that we might flourish, all so that we might be made whole. We pray that you would impress that deep into our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.